podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And it is a very merry Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. For you. (laughs) If you're listening, it is not Christmas for us yet because we are recording in advance due to linear time. (laughs) But it is Christmas Eve when you're listening. And so we have a few treats. As is our Christmas tradition, we are making like Mary Poppins and we are rounding up some of our favourite things from the year, both bookish and Mm non-bookish. So if you're new, um, this is what we do every year. Um, And if you want to listen to all the other years, then why not? (laughs) (laughs) But Emily, I thought that to start with, we should announce one very special new favourite thing. Which you might have already heard. (laughs) You might already know this if you follow either of us on Instagram. But we got a kitten. Yeah. Well, I got a kitten, but she lives with us both. That I get to love her yes. all the time. So Her name is Fable. Because you, might, you might be able to hear her yeah, running about right now. She's scrabbling around. She's called Fable because obviously I'm that yep. bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, she is extremely special and magical. <laughs> um, there's never been a bear cat. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest so that I have to say is my top infatuation of the year oh yeah 100% <laughs> yeah <laughs> episode done <laughs> but yeah so should we just get started yeah let's go for it so Emily tell me the first thing that you're infatuated with um, so read in favourite setting Settings. That's first. what I have first. Yep, cool. cool. So the book that I picked was a contender for a lot of the categories, actually, and it's Babel by R.F. Quang. Mm-hmm. Um, or to give it its full title, Babel or the Necessity of Violence, an Arcane History of the Oxford Translator's Revolution, <laughs> which is... Wonderful name. That's like that Fiona Apple album. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like our listeners, or a lot of our listeners, will have heard of this one already. Um, It came out this summer and was an instant New York Times bestseller, Sunday Times bestseller. It's up for loads of awards. Um, And it is a gigantic dark academia fantasy set at Oxford in the 1830s. I'm going to do a full episode on this one when we come back for a full season because there is so much to say about it um, but I'm going to do like a very brief look at it today. So in this alternate Oxford and its university we have a translation centre called Babel. Our main character Robin has been brought over from Canton as a child to be a ward of a professor at Babel. And when Robin's a young adult, he attends the school and learns the art of silver working, um, which is a kind of magic that comes from translation. I'm so on board. Yeah. Again, I'm going to talk more about the magic in that future episode. Um, For now, I'm just going to share a couple quotes from some early lessons they have, which are like scene setting, which is also why I picked it for this category. The first quote is from their first tour of Babel. So Robin's class is a very small group. It's him and another young man and two young women, which is already quite an anomaly to have two women at Oxford Mm. in the 1830s. Only one of the four of them is white. And yeah, they've just been shown the Tower of Babel, all the libraries and classrooms and workshops. 
and this is a little interaction between them and um, their professor who we probably see well the professor we probably see them interact with the most in the novel nice I am just shook because the whole way the whole time you've been talking about this book I thought Babel was a person oh so I'm just like oh it's a place that's completely rocked my entire world view <laughs> wait till you hear what it's named after <laughs> I will get to that. Babel is um, not that any of our readers can see, but Babel is this. Ah. Big tower on the front of the book. I see, I see. Um, Okay. Professor Playfair beamed at them. So now you've seen Babel. How are we all doing? For a moment, no one spoke. Letty, Rami and Victoire seemed as stunned as Robin felt. They'd been exposed to a great deal of information at once, and the effect was that Robin wasn't sure the ground he stood on was real. Professor Playfair chuckled. I know. I had the same expression on my first day here as well. It's rather like an induction into a hidden world, isn't it? Like taking food in the Seelie Court. Once you know what happens in the tower, the mundane world doesn't seem half as interesting. It's dazzling, sir, said Letty. Incredible. Professor Playfair winked at her. It's the most wonderful place on earth. He cleared his throat. Now I'd like to tell a story. Forgive me for being dramatic, but I like to mark this occasion, your first day, after all, in what I believe to be the most important research centre in the world. Would that be all right? He didn't need their approval, but they nodded regardless. Thank you. Now we know this following story from Herodotus. He paced several steps before them, like a player marking out his position on the stage. He tells us of the Egyptian king Semeticus, who once formed a pact with the Ionian sea raiders to defeat the eleven kings who had betrayed him. After he had overthrown his enemies, he gave large tracts of land to his Ionian allies. But Semeticus wanted an even bigger guarantee that the Ionians would not turn on him as his former allies once had. He wanted to prevent wars based on misunderstandings, so he sent young Egyptian boys to live with the Ionians and learn Greek, so that when they grew up they could serve as interpreters between the two peoples. Here at Babel we take inspiration from Semeticus. He peered around and his sparkling gaze landed on each of them in turn as he spoke. Translation from time immemorial has been the facilitator of peace. Translation makes possible communication which in turn makes possible the kind of diplomacy, trade and cooperation between foreign peoples that brings wealth and prosperity to all. You've noticed by now, surely, that Babel alone among the Oxford faculties accepts students not of European origin. Nowhere else in this country will you find Hindus, Muslims, Africans and Chinamen studying under the same roof. We accept you not despite, but because of your foreign backgrounds. Professor Playfair emphasised this last part as if it was a matter of great pride. Because of your origins, you have the gift of languages those born in England cannot imitate. And you, like Semeticus's boys, are the tongues that will speak this vision of global harmony into being. He clasped his hands before him as if in prayer. Anyhow, the postgrads make fun of me for that spiel every year. They think it's trite. But I think the situation calls for such gravity, don't you? After all, we're here to make the unknown known, to make the other familiar. 
We're here to make magic with words. This was, Robin thought, the kindest thing anyone had ever had to say about his being foreign-born. And though the story made his gut squirm, for he had read the relevant passage of Herodotus and recalled that the Egyptian boys were nevertheless slaves, he felt also a thrum of excitement at the thought that perhaps his unbelonging did not doom him to an existing forever in the margins, that perhaps, instead, it made him special. Aww. So, before I dissect that too much, I'm going to read the second quote, Mm. which is the same group, same professor, but this is like an early lesson of theirs, just because it has some like slightly similar themes and also explains why it's called Babel. He tapped the book lying on his desk. You've all finished Typler, yes? They nodded. They'd been assigned the introductory chapter of Essay on Principles of Translation, by Lord Alexander Fraser Titler Woodhousley the night before. Then you'll have read that Titler recommends three basic principles, which are, yes, Mr. Grove? First, that the translation conveys a complete and accurate idea of the original, said Victoire. Second, that the translation mirrors the style and manner of writing of the original. And third, that the translation should should read with all the ease of the original composition. She spoke with such confident precision, Robin thought she must have been reading from the text. He was very impressed when he glanced over and saw her consulting nothing but blank space. Rame, too, had this talent for perfect recall. Robin was beginning to feel a bit intimidated by his cohort. Very good, said Professor Playfair. This sounds basic enough. But what do we mean by the style and manner of the original? What does it mean for a composition to read easily? What audience do we have in mind when we make these claims? These are the questions we will tackle this term, and such fascinating questions they are. He clasped his hands together. Allow me to descend into theatrics by discussing our namesake, Babel. Yes, dear students, I can't quite escape the romanticism of this institution. Indulge me, please. His tone conveyed no regret at all. Professor Playfair loved this dramatic mysticism, these monologues that must have been rehearsed and perfected over years of teaching. But no one complained. They loved it too. It is often argued that the greatest tragedy of the Old Testament was not man's exile from the Garden of Eden, but the fall of the Tower of Babel. For Adam and Eve, though cast from grace, could still speak and comprehend the language of angels. But when men in their hubris decided to build a path to heaven, God confounded their understanding. He divided and confused them and scattered them about the face of the earth. What was lost at Babel was not merely human unity, but the original language, something primordial and innate, perfectly understandable and lacking nothing in form or content. Biblical scholars call it the Adamic language. Some think it is Hebrew. Some think it is a real but ancient language that has been lost to time. Some think it is a new artificial language that we ought to invent. Some think French fulfills this role. Some think English, once it's finished robbing and morphing, might. Oh no, this one is easy, said Rami. It's Syriac. Very funny, Mr Mirza. Robin did not know Rami was indeed joking, but no one else made a comment. Professor Playfair ploughed ahead. For me, however, it matters not what the Adamic language was, 
for it's clear we have lost any access to it. We will never speak the divine language. But by amassing all the world's languages under this roof, by collecting the full range of human expressions, or as near to it as we can get, we can try. We will never touch heaven from this mortal plane, but our confusion is not infinite. We can, through perfecting the arts of translation, achieve what humanity lost at Babel. Professor Playfair sighed, moved by his own performance. Robin thought he saw actual tears form in the corners of his eyes. Magic, Professor Playfair pressed a hand against his chest. What we are doing is magic. It won't always feel that way. Indeed, when you do tonight's exercise, it'll feel more like folding laundry than chasing the ephemeral. But never forget the audacity of what you are attempting. Never forget that you are defying a curse laid by God. Robin raised his hand. Do you mean, then, that our purpose here is to bring mankind closer together as well? Professor Playfair cocked his head. What do you mean by that? I only... Robin faltered. It sounded silly as he said it. A child's fancy, not a serious scholarly query. Letty and Victoire were frowning at him. Even Rami was wrinkling his nose. Robin tried again. He knew what he meant to ask, only he couldn't think of an elegant or subtle way to phrase it. Well, since in the Bible, God split mankind apart, and I wonder if if the purpose of translation, then, is to bring mankind back together. If we translate to, I don't know, to bring about that paradise again on earth between nations. Professor Playfair looked baffled by this. But quickly his features resembled into a sprightly beam. Well, of course, such is the project of empire, and why, therefore, we translate it the pleasure of the crown. Oof. And I will stop there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that those quotes I've given you give like enough of a taste of the academic side of the novel. Um, I don't think it comes across as too sinister yet, especially because in those quotes, Robin is so hopeful. Um, but I do think you get an idea of the massive overarching theme of Babel, which is colonialism yeah. or like the violence of colonialism, to be more specific. But then on a more like happier note, also like the power of words and language, you definitely see that more with like the magic side of the book, which I've not really shown today, but like. You can see bits of it there. Mm. I think you specifically will love this book because you like etymology and languages languages and academic discourse <laughs> about those things. <laughs> so yeah, I just I picked it as my favourite setting because I love a book set at university that equally praises what is good about academia because there are lots of great things about academia. Um, but that also very clearly points out the flaws in the system. Mm. Um, and obviously, Babel or Oxford University is meant to be like a microcosm of the world. The world, yes. And while I can't personally relate to the experience of being a person of colour in such a prestigious place, I have seen from many reviews that she has nailed it. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to go with what everyone else is saying and said that she did a really good job. And I know as based off of Quang's lived experience she did go to Oxford and she was like 
not happy there basically by the sound of it mm. and also yeah there's really cool word based magic and I'm excited to talk about it more in depth at a later date yay <laughs> nice one um, what was your first pick what was your favourite setting my favourite setting comes from my favourite book of the year mm. um, which is Honeycomb by Joanne Harris Yes. well jo- Joanne M Harris for Honeycomb she is the same woman um, <laughs> over and over, but she uses slightly different pen names because she writes over a few different genres. Right. But this book, like you with Babel, I'm going to do a full episode on this next season. I loved it so much, and I think you will love it so much. I know. It's one that I, like, I actually wanted to read this year and kept forgetting, because mm-hmm. it's not in my room, it's in the living room. Mm-hmm. So, like, I just kept forgetting to actually pick it up. But I will... I will. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Fable is a, a play- cat chasing a mouse. <laughs> yeah, she's playing with a little rattling mouse, but I can't interrupt her fun, so there we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, I read Honeycomb this summer, and it is essentially a book of original fairy tales mm. told as a series of very short fables, mm. um, but with one fairy character, the Lacewing King, who's the ruler of the fairies, linking many of the tales together and then some of the secondary characters also appearing in multiple tales. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's, it reads as a novel built of many small interlinked parts, much like a honeycomb. Mm. Lots of individual cells See what she did there. that create a whole. There is a bee motif. I think that fans of Erin Morgenstern, which as everyone that <laughs> listens to this knows, we are. We are. <laughs> um, will really love this, particularly fans of the Starless Sea because it has some completely one-off short stories mm-hmm. amid the main narrative, which exists really just to flesh out the world. And one of these is my favourite setting because it's basically like a Rebecca dream world, okay. but it's super creepy. So I'm just going to read you the whole short story. It's only three pages. Okay. And I'm not going to tell you any more about the book because, like I say, I'm going to talk about yeah. it loads. It does have really pretty pictures in it, mm. which I appreciate from a fairy book. This story is called The Girl in the Candy Pink Castle. Oh. And one thing that you need to know going in is that all of these kingdoms are along the river of Dream. On one of the furthest scaries of Dream, there lived a girl who refused to die. She lived on the edge of the kingdom of death, so close that she could sometimes see the haze that rose above its wastes and hear the howling of the wind over the steel-grey desert. She often heard the night train as it passed her island, heading for the heart of death with its cargo of passengers, and she promised herself that she would never set foot either on that dreadful train or on the shores of the kingdom of death that lay across the water. And so on her island she built a wall to keep out the sight and the stench of death. She made it from dreams and picture books, from coloured candies and teddy bears, from birthday candles and parasols, from ribbons and rainbows and ponies and dolls. She built it very high, so that even the sky she shared with death was obscured in a haze of ice cream clouds. And then she built within the walls a candy pink castle of marshmallow fluff, with turrets made of raspberry glass and pavements made from honeycomb. There were parlours filled with cushions and cakes and treasure chests filled with candies. There was a park with a rosewater lake and alleys of sherbet fountains. 
There were orchards of blossom and lollipop trees and herds of pastel pink ponies. And there were many, many toys, for death is a cold and lonely place and the girl was afraid of being alone. There were dollies and pandas and rabbits and cats and soldiers with tiny pink rifles that fired flower petals and stars. There were princesses in flouncy skirts and teddy bears and happy clowns. There were china dolls with cupcakes for heads and talking pandas with lollipop paws and dragons that breathed candy floss clouds and cats that grinned like monkeys. And the girl, who was the queen of them all, looked at what she had built and smiled and knew that she had conquered death. The sun always shone on her kingdom, although sometimes there were clouds that rained showers of petal pink popcorn. Nothing ever died there because nothing had ever quite been alive. And the cold sound of the wind outside was drowned in laughter and music. Every day was a birthday filled with cakes and candles. Every day was a holiday. A hundred thousand days went by, and yet the girl did not grow old or sick or sad or lonely. Every day she would choose a new dress from one of her many changing rooms and dance and sing to adoring crowds of children, toys and animals. She would sing songs about candies and kites, marshmallows, cupcakes and rainbows. Sometimes she would accompany herself on one of her ice cream coloured guitars. And every day, surveying her realm, the girl in the candy pink castle would congratulate herself on having conquered death. And then one day, there arrived in her castle a little girl just like herself. She was almost as pretty and very nearly as beautifully dressed, and her hair was the palest pistachio green, held back with a pair of plastic barrettes shaped like tiny coffins. Her gloves and matching platform shoes were painted with little black roses and she carried a silken parasol printed with candy, pastel candy skulls. The girl in the candy pink castle came to greet the dainty newcomer. Who are you? Where did you come from? she said. You've made quite an impression, said the newcomer to the girl. My own little kingdom almost pales in comparison with yours. The girl in the candy pink castle frowned for the first time in many years. For the first time in many years, she seemed to feel a mysterious chill, as if a cold wind had somehow found its way through the rosy raspberry walls. And there was a sound too, a sound like that of an oncoming train, approaching through the gardens of lollipop trees and candy canes. She looked again at the newcomer. Who are you? she repeated. The newcomer took off one of her gloves. Beneath it, her hand was skeletal. I'm a little girl. Like you. Like you, I have many outfits. Like you, I love to play little games. Like you, I enjoy being surrounded by toys and pets and playmates. The girl in the candy pink castle paled. How did you get in here? She said. The little girl, who was deaf, gave a smile. You silly, she said and took her hand. I've been in here all the time. Oh... I love it though. <laughs> yeah, it's so creepy. Um, oh, and she's back. <laughs> yeah, I just it's it's actually the most kind of moderny mm. of of the fairy tales. It's one of the more like Pinteresty aesthetics <laughs> yeah. compared to the proper fairy kingdoms. Yeah, but I just loved it. I was just like, it feels like an explosion of my brain Mm. um with added fear of death (laughs) 
um yeah. so yeah i don't really have much to say on that other than i thought it was a cool setting it is cool yeah no i i definitely like the sound of that book i have to read it yes you do <laughs> and who was your favorite character of the year I struggled with this one actually because I think it's because so many of the books I read were actually character driven Mm. so it was quite hard to like single one out as a favourite but I did love a lot of the characters in Little Thieves by Margaret Owen Mm. Um, so that's going to be my pick Um, and I liked pretty much all the main cast but the character I want to focus on today is the narrator Vanya Schmidt so I did actually do an episode on this one uh, this season, but to remind you all, Little Thieves came out in 2021 and it's a loose retelling of the Goose Girl fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Basically the plot is that Vanya grew up as the maid to the princess in Giselle um, for reasons which you find out as you read the book. Vanya is taking revenge on Giselle by stealing her identity. And this is helped by an enchanted pearl necklace of Giselle's that makes her look like this perfect image of a princess. So when Vanya wears it, she looks like Giselle. And her plan is to masquerade as the princess, which allows her access into all these extravagant estates and parties, which she then robs as the penny geist, the penny phantom, called so because she leaves a red penny uh, in place of the jewels that she steals. She's also, just to add on top of that, the goddaughter of death and fortune, who have been asking her to serve one of them for years, but she doesn't want to be in servitude to anyone anymore. So the plan is, when she gets all her money from being the penny phantom, she's going to run away. I really need to read this. It sounds so good. Yeah, it's wild. The plan gets a little complicated. Um, Character called Emmerich, who I remember speaking about on that first episode, is investigating the Penny Phantom robberies. Giselle, so Vanya in disguise, is engaged to a very horrific Margrave. And Vanya gets cursed to turn into gemstones until she works out how to break the curse. (laughs) She just keeps breaking out in gemstones. So yeah, it's a very wild book. I did a full episode on it if you want to hear more about it and all my favourite passages. But today to share why I like Vanya so much, I thought I'd share two quotes. One is from the beginning of the book. So we've had a little prologue, which um, is very fairy tale inspired, Hmm. slightly more traditional language. And I read that one out last episode. But this is the first like proper chapter um, from Vanya's point of view. And it is titled Card Games. Interesting. Mm. It has been nearly 13 years since death and fortune claimed me for their own and I have come far enough through winter and cold that almost no one calls me Vanya now. Thump thump. Two wraps of gloved knuckles against the carriage roof. The driver's muffled voice carries down to me inside. Almost there, princessin. I don't reply. I don't have to. I learned long ago that princesses don't owe their servants answers. And for the most of the last year, that's the face I've worn. The princess. Or, to be precise, Giselle Bethelda Ludvila von Falberg of the Sovabin Principality, Princess in Wall of the Blessed Empire of Almondy. Soon to be Margrafin Giselle, you get the idea of von Reckenbach of the Empire's largest territory, the border march of Buern, once its Margrave gets around to a wedding. So not if I can help it. 
We'll come back to that. I squint out of the gilt-trimmed carriage window, studying the timber and plaster blocks of Eisendorf Manor as the horses draw us closer. Shadows pass behind the first floor windows, turning them to rosy eyes winking into the frosty twilight gloom. It looks crowded already, even for a Sunday night party. Good. A princess ought to be the last of the von Eisendorf's guests to arrive. There was a reason I dawdled in my bedroom at Castle Reichenbach, to make sure we hit peak Minkja traffic when we left an hour ago. But I have more motive to survey the manor scenery than just making sure the princessin arrives fashionably late. Lit windows are fewer on the third floor, but I still spot two bracketing the double doors where the master bedroom lets out onto its telltale grand balcony. The real question tonight is whether it's the only balcony. It is not. Balconettes frame it on either side. Lamplight gilds only one of the balconettes, spilling from an adjacent room that looks to share the fat main chimney with the master bedroom. That chimney is currently chugging smoke into the dimming sky. One might wonder why the von Eisendorfs would keep a fire going up in their bedroom when they'll be busy entertaining guests downstairs all evening. I bet three solid gilding that they're heating the guest chambers next door in instead, in case I, well, in case the princessin needs a respite. An opportunity to suck up to the Margrave's bride-to-be can't be missed. One also might wonder why I care about chimneys, balconettes and suck-ups. It's because tonight the von Eisendorfs are handing me an entirely different sort of opportunity. And I would loathe for either of those opportunities to go to waste. The faint reflection of my grin cuts across the glass. A moment later it vanishes as my breath clouds the pain in the late November chill. I should play it safe, settle back into my seat, and resume the serene, graceful facade of the princessin. Instead I size up the remaining distance between us and the first guard will pass and quickly draw a simple, distinct set of curves in the fogged glass. Then I sit back and smooth my grin down to a placid smile. When we pass the first guard, I see him do a double take. He elbows the guard beside him, pointing to the carriage window, and I'm pretty sure I hear, an arse, and no one will ever believe you, I hum under my breath as the fog melts from the glass. <laughs> the jingle stamp of the horses stop when we draw even with the manor stout oaken front door. I sneak a look under the opposite seat and confirm my satchel, or unassuming toilette bag, is still stowed away. For now, it will stay there. Then I close my eyes, swaying with the carriage as the footman jumps off, and think of three playing cards dancing face down across the table. It's time to begin my oldest game, Find the Lady. There are many tricks to running the game, but the absolutely ironclad one is this. Only one person should know where the lady is at all times. That person is me. I run my fingertips over the string of heavy, perfect pearls around my neck. It's habit more than anything. I would know if they were unclasped. I would know. The carriage door opens. In my mind, I flip the first card face up. The princessin. Silver eyes, pale golden curls, pristine pearls under glacier blue velvet and burgundy brocade. A gentle smile with a hint of mystery. Even the name Giselle is an intrigue, stunning sturdy Almanic for the Bourgienne pronunciation, with its honeyed vowels and a butter-soft G. It's just the sort of pretentious affectation Dame von Falberg loved to dish out, 
knowing people like the Von Eisendorfs would eat it up. This is how the game begins, you see. Step one, show them the card they're looking for. The princessin descends from the carriage like a vision. Isbetta and Gustav von Eisendorf are hovering in the entrance hall, faces lighting up when they see me finally gliding toward their open door. It's not just about arriving on my own schedule, of course. It's about making sure that other guests see Isbetta and Gustav waiting for me. I alone see the surest sign that this night is going to go off without a hitch, for when fortune is your godmother, you can always see her hand at work. Faint, dull clouds like coal dust are coalescing around the von Eisendorfs as they flutter in the hall. It's an omen of the ill luck I'm about to bring upon their house. Um, and I'm going to skip ahead through like the scheming mm. and heist-like bit, just to keep that as a surprise. Um, but I do want to read the last little bit of this chapter, and you also get to see the how the pearl necklace works. Mm. The final touch, though, demands a mirror. Not because I need to see what I'm doing, but because I need to be sure it works. Luckily, Gustav von Eisendorf loves nothing so much as showing off, and expensive full-length mirrors are well in supply in his guest parlour. I stand before the nearest one and look my reflection over. From the neck down, I am a maidservant in an unobtrusive Reichenbach uniform, filling it out nicely with curves that would be called ambitious in a maiden of nearly seventeen like myself. From the chin up, a few wisps of platinum hair twist from under the blue cap and silvery eyes blink back at me from a heart-shaped face. Even without powders or rouge, twin roses bloom in my smooth ivory cheeks and my pert lips flush with a natural shell-pink glow. The hair is like sunshine, the eyes like moonlight. They are both key to the image of the girl the March of Boerin knows as Giselle von Falberg. So was her signature string of perfect matched pearls. I reach back and unclasp it from my neck. The effect is immediate. My face lengthens, thins, mottles with a dusting of freckles. My eyes darken to black, the few loose tendrils of hair burnished rusty orange. The uniform dress hangs a little looser, though I've put on weight from a year's worth of finally eating my fill. And it hangs a little longer for eating well still cannot replace the inches I lost due to years of meagre fare in Castle Falberg. I am plain. I am forgettable. I am what I was for ten years, Giselle's perfect servant. I slip the pearls into a pocket and button it tight. I will not risk leaving them hidden in a cushion, not when I'm so close to being free of them and of Giselle for the rest of my life. Right on cue, Hans's footsteps echo down the hall. I hunch my shoulders forward, lower my head and slip through the door, donning a look of worried vexation. In my mind, the second card turns over. Martha the maid. There you are, Hans says. Martha, yeah? I jump as if he startled me, then shut the parlour door and bob into a curtsy. My voice takes on a high, whispery rasp. My apologies. It seems my mistress sent a few people to look for me in her need. I'm afraid she's had... I watch as the smell of burnt silk reaches hands. An accident, I finish with just enough peevishness to suggest this is not an unusual occurrence. Hans's face softens with camaraderie. I can't leave her, but I need my toilette satchel from the carriage. Hans sighs and his voice lowers. Fine, I'll fetch it. And if the von Falberg brat has any further accidents, try to make sure they're cheap ones. I curtsy again. My thanks. 
Once he started down the hall, I duck back into the parlour and call in my drunken Giselle voice, Martha, what in the blessed empire of Almondy is taking so long? It is certainly loud enough for Hans to hear. If he is a dutiful man, he will hurry to the carriage house, which is even farther away than the new chapel. But if Hans is as spiteful a servant as I was in von Falberg, he will take his time. Ten minutes at the least, fifteen minutes at the most. Martha the maid and Giselle the princess fall back into their dance on the table in my mind's eye, circling the third and final card I've yet to reveal. This is how you win the game, you know. Show them what they want to see, let them think they can win, let them follow the cards, keep their eyes where you want them, and never, ever lose sight of the real mark. I trade the cap for the dull grey kerchief to cover my inconveniently bright ginger braid. Then I take up the linen drawstring bag and fold it into another pocket, checking one corner for a familiar weight, a single red penny. It's there, and it's time. I turn my final card. It's a shifting shadow, a blur in the night, a faceless spectre. It could be a ghost, it could be anything. After all, no one's ever seen the penny geist. Once upon a time, there was a girl as cunning as the fox in winter, as hungry as the wolf at first frost, as cold as the icy wind that kept them at each other's throats. Her name was not Giselle, nor was it Martha, nor even Pennygeist. My name was, is, Vanya, and this is the story of how I got caught. Ooh, what a dramatic ending. <laughs> I like her, like, con man vibes. I know. Oh, she is a con man. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I know, but I mean, just like with the yeah. the shifting cards and stuff. Oh no, definitely. As much as I love her scheming, which I do, I'm also very interested in. I I did speak about this last time about like her trauma and her upbringing as a maid, and the point of the book is kind of trying to work out why she hates Giselle so much. Um, and as I've said before, there are a few short stories told in the style of fairy tales throughout this book. And it's through those short stories that we find out what happens to make Vanya want to take revenge on Giselle. Mm. So I thought I would read one last quote. I know I've read quite a lot from this one, but it's a very good book. (laughs) So yeah, this is one of the short stories. Um, It's called The White Penny and the Red. And this doesn't spoil Vanya's reasons for revenge, but it does like hint Mm. at things to come. And I just think it's really good. So I'm going to read that as well. Go for it. Once upon a time, between the snowy mountains and the deep, dark forest, two little girls lived in a castle. One slept in a soft, warm bed and wore soft, warm dresses, and the words spoken to her were soft and warm as well. They called her the Princessin. The other girl slept on the hard, cold ground in the pantry to keep away the rats. It didn't always work. Her only dress was too small, for no one wanted to buy her a new one when it would just be stained and torn too, and quickly outgrown. The words she heard were cold and hard. Scrub this, empty that, clumsy oaf, don't let the guests see you so dirty. The hands she caught were harder. They called girls like her wristmat, soot wench, for that was all they were good for, cleaning soot off pans and wearing it. In the castle lived a clever and beautiful magician who knew the ways of enchantment and charm, and one night she took pity on the little rust mat. 
She taught the girl tricks to help her impress the masters of the castle through flattery and cunning, and helped her practice night after night, even when both of them were weary to the bone. And then one day a great lady came to visit, and a serving maid fell ill. The Rusmacht was given a rough bath and a clean, too large uniform and sent to take the maid's place. When the great lady had gone and the castle was beginning to settle once more, the soot wench was asked to help the princess in get ready for bed. The soot wench saw the golden hand of fortune reaching for her and knew this was a chance she would not see again. Of course, said the Rusmacht, but there's something in your hair, milady. She pulled a silk daisy from behind the princess's ear. The princess's mother burst into astonished laughter. How clever! Did Janiza teach you? Both mother and daughter were delighted. By week's end, the princessin had a new lady's maid, and the former Rusmacht had a clean new dress and a straw pallet beside the hearth. And for a while, that was good enough. The princessin and her maid were together every day. The little maid learned more of the magician's tricks to dazzle the masters of the castle, handstands and somersaults and making salt bowls disappear. At the princess's insistence, the maid also learned to read and write and do her sums. Then, of her own volition, the maid began to eavesdrop on the tutors sent to school the princess elector to be in history and politics and all things a ruler ought to know. The maid learned of who lived in a castle, who cheated their way into one, who took coin from whom and why. The two girls became friends in a strange kind of way, for when it was just the two of them, they could have been cut from the same cloth. They shared secrets and dreams and jokes. They climbed the same trees, read the same books, and sometimes the princess snuck sweets off her plate for the maid. To find one was to know the other was not far away. The dame even began to call them Roughed Penny and Wesser Penny, the red penny and the white. But the seams split whenever anyone else was there, for they were two little girls of almost the same age, but one had been born to own the castle, and the other called her mistress. When I was nine, and new to the higher stories of Castle Fallberg, I thought the dame called me her red penny for my bright copper hair. I remember the day I was dusting the bookshelves as Giselle's chitter droned on about the importance of standards and minting coins. I remember furtively rolling my eyes at Giselle and trying not to giggle as she pulled a face behind the oblivious chitter's back. It used to be there were only white pennies, the man was wheezing, silver through and through, but then the Comte of Karstad started sneaking copper into the coins to stretch the silver further and the practice spread, and no one could agree on what a silver penny was worth when it wasn't pure. The blessed Emperor Bertholda, your ancestor, declared any copper in a coin made it a red penny, worth one-fiftieth of a white penny. The mint sorted themselves out in short order after that. I remember the startled, awful look on Giselle's face then. It matched the feeling in my chest. It was the first time we understood why she was called the White Penny and I the Red, and it would not be the last. Oofed. How sad. That is so sad. But yeah, I, I just love how Owen's written these short interludes because they're quite 
like they're fun to read because of their style but they're also the moments where Vanya gets to be a bit more vulnerable in her storytelling Mm. because there's less sass and more honesty Um, but you can tell she's only able to be honest because she's telling it at a slight remove from herself by making it sound like a fictional story I just think it's very clever. It's clever. Um, And yeah, I just think the book is very clever, very funny. I absolutely adored Little Thieves and I cannot wait to read more of Vanya's antics (laughs) in the next one, which is out in 2023 at some point. Um, So yeah, that's my favourite character. Sorry, that was very long. (laughs) (laughs) Don't apologise. I enjoyed it. (laughs) I'm always up for more Vanya. Uh, what was your pick? Who's your favourite character? My favourite character, this was really hard because I I loved so many of the characters in the books that I'm mentioning. Mm. Um, but the one that I've picked is from another one of Joanne Harris's books and it is Chocolat, mm. um, the book that the film of the same name is based on. And if anyone's not familiar with the story, it follows a young kind of witchy woman called Vianne and her daughter Anouk as they move into a tiny and very devoutly Catholic town in the south of France and they set up a chocolate shop during Lent, <laughs> much to the disapproval of the priest and the better members of the community. Mm. And there's so many, it's a kind of ensemble cast in this book and there's so many really lovely characters but my favourite character and I think this was the same when I picked the woman from Adi LaRue. My mm. favourite character is a crotchety old woman um, <laughs> called Armand who lives on the other side of the river from Vianna and Anouk and she rebels against everything. Her daughter is one of the more upstanding members of the congregation mm-hmm. and like she feuds with her daughter she embarrasses her she uh doesn't is the only woman that's old enough to kind of talk back to the priest who's kind of in his 40s but she remembers when he was a wee boy <laughs> yeah. and she when there is a gypsy sort of parade of boats that come along the river she allows them to stay outside her house because she likes their parties nice um Oh, also another fun fact about her that I need to share is that she always wears bright red silk underwear even though no one sees it. Mm. She's like 80 or something. I love that. Um, But I wanted to just read this little excerpt because I think it gives a really good snippet of her personality because... Right, this book's been out for 20 years and the film's (laughs) been out for a long time so I'm going to give a spoiler, right? Armand is dying. (laughs) Okay. And, And like... So she's really old anyway, so I don't feel like that's a huge spoiler. Sure. But her health is failing throughout the book and she's dying. And this is when she gets the news from the doctor that, like, she's pretending she doesn't know, like, she's dying. But, like, everyone kind of gets that that's what the news means. She's sitting in her house uh, talking to Vianne and this is what she says. The cat, sensing the movement, uncurled from beneath the rocking chair and jumped onto her knees, purring. Armand scratched its head and it buzzed and butted at her chin with small, playful gestures. Lariflette, said Armand. After a moment, I realised that was the cat's name. I've had her 19 years. That makes her nearly my age in cat time. 
She made a small clucking sound at the cat, which purred louder. I'm supposed to be allergic, said Armand. Asthma or something. I told them that I'd rather choke than get rid of my cats. Though there are some humans I could give up without a second thought. <laughs> Lara Flett whisker twitched lazily. I looked across the water and saw Anouk playing under the jetty with two black-haired river children. From what I could hear, Anouk, the youngest of the three, seemed to be directing operations. Stay and have some coffee, suggested Armand. I was going to make some when you came along anyway. I've got some lemonade for Anouk too. I made the coffee myself in Armand's curious small kitchen with its cast iron range and low ceiling. Everything is clean there, but the one tiny window looks onto the river, giving the light a greenish underwater look. Hanging from the dark unpainted beams are bunches of dry herbs in their muslin sachets. On the whitewashed walls, the copper pans hang from hooks. The door, like all the doors in the house, has a hole cut into the base to allow free passage to her cats. Another cat watched me curiously from a high ledge as I made the coffee in an enamelled tin pot. The lemonade, I noticed, was sugar-free, and the sweetener in the basin was some kind of sugar substitute. In spite of her bravado, it seems as if she does take some precautions after all. Foul stuff, she commented without rancour, sipping the drink from one of her hand-painted cups. They say you can't taste the difference, but you can. She made a wry face. Carol brings it when she comes. Goes through my cupboards. I suppose she means well. Can't help being in any. I told her she ought to take more care. Armand snorted. When you get to my age, she told me, things start to break down. If it isn't one thing, it's another. It's a fact of life. She took another sip of the bitter coffee. When he was 16, Rumbud said he wanted to experience as much as possible with the greatest possible intensity. Well, I'm going on 80 now, and I'm beginning to think he was right. She grinned, and I was again struck by the youthfulness of her face, a quality that has less to do with colouring or bone structure than with a kind of inner brightness and anticipation, the look of someone who has hardly begun to discover what life has to offer. I think you're probably too old to join the Foreign Legion, I told her with a smile, and didn't Rimbaud's experiences run rather to excess at times? Our man shot me an impish look. That's right, she replied. I could do with a bit more excess. From now on, I'm going to be immoderate and volatile. I shall enjoy loud music and lurid poetry. I shall be rampant, she declared with satisfaction. I laughed. You're quite absurd, I said with mock severity. No wonder your family despairs of you. But even though she laughed with me, rocking with merriment in her chair, what I recall now is not her laughter, but what I glimpsed behind the laughter. That look of giddy abandon, desperate glee. And it was only later, late into the night, when I awoke sweating from some dark, half-forgotten nightmare, that I remembered where I'd seen that look before. How about Florida, sweetheart? The Everglades? The Keys? How about Disneyland, Cherie? Or New York, Chicago, the Grand Canyon, Chinatown, New Mexico, the Rocky Mountains? But with Armand, there was none of my mother's fear, none of her delicate parrying and wrangling with death. None of her mad hit-and-run flights of fancy into the unknown. With Armand, there was only the hunger, the desire, and the terrible awareness of time. I wonder what the doctor said to her this morning, and how much she really understands. I lay awake for a long time wondering, and when I finally slept, I dreamed of myself and Armand walking through Disneyland, 
with Reynaud and Carol hand in hand as the Red Queen and the White Rabbit from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, with big white cartoon gloves on their hands. Carol had a red crown on her giant head, and Armand had a stick of candy floss in each fist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like her. (laughs) I like her too. I like her that she cuts the little holes in the doors for the cats. cats. I know. I like that she does that, and I like that she pretends like she isn't paying attention to the doctor telling her not to eat sugar, and then Mm. she doesn't eat the sugar anyway. Yeah, yeah. Aww. She's just like that's she's all like very bravado and but then she's actually very sweet and yeah. nice and I don't know, I just I, I want to be like that when I'm old. <laughs> yeah. I just love old ladies in books. Yeah. That are no, like same. crotchety and live alone and hate everyone. <laughs> um but yeah, Armanda's probably because she's like the most lovable she's meant to be the most lovable. Like, yeah, she's probably the standout character from my year. Nice. Um, and I also just love the way I love Vianne as well, the narrator. Mm-hmm. I love the way she talks about her, yeah. and I love the way she sort of sees the world. And when I do my episode on chocolate, I will talk about that more. Mm. Looking forward to it. What is your favorite passage or line from yes. the year? So, I've already read out my favorite passage this year, and I had intentions of picking another book or another quote from the same book but I just can't do it so I'm just going to read the same quote again Um, it's from Poison for Breakfast by Lemon oh yes Um, and yeah I just think it's that good that I'm going to read it again I apologise if you didn't like it but I don't care Um, she's not actually sorry (laughs) I'm not actually sorry basically is what I'm trying to say Um, so to recap this book begins when Lemony Snicket finds a note passed under his door which simply reads you had poison for breakfast and from there he retraces all of the ingredients in his breakfast to try and work out which one has the poison in it Mm. Um, for each ingredient he goes on like a bit of a philosophical tangent has like a bit of a reflection about life and death and about writing so this passage Snicket is in the park and he's just explained that he likes to like, imagine what people's conversations are when he sees them in the park. Um, so he's just made up this conversation between two people on a park bench, and this is what he says after that. I did not know what Sylvia and Terry, whose names, of course, I was imagining, were really saying, but they were correct in what I imagined they were imagining about me. I was, in fact, thinking of a time, a long time ago, but in the exact same place I was standing. It is always strange to stand in a place where something happened to you long ago, particularly if the place has not changed much. The tree had surely grown a little, and the fence was perhaps more windblown, and the benches a little scuffier than they were on that happy day. But it looks more or less the same, I thought, and I knew this because I had a photograph of the time I mean, the time I was thinking about. The photograph was taken by someone I will never see again, and it shows me as a young man, so young that some people, to my annoyance, were still calling me a boy, sitting against the tree, my shoes resting on the gravel. You can see the bench in the background where Sylvia and Terry were sitting, and indeed there are two people sitting on the bench in the photograph, although I do not know who they were, so of course I do not know where those people are now, or if the goats in the photograph were the same goats I was watching in the meadow. 
It seemed unlikely. It was a long time ago. The meadow was the same and it was still right there in the park with me, but I did not know where anyone else from the photograph was. Sometimes when I look at the photograph, I think that moment was perhaps my finest hour so long ago and that I missed it because I did not know it then. I don't look very happy in the photograph, although it was a happy day. Perhaps the person holding the camera just caught me at a moment where I was not displaying my happiness, or perhaps I did not quite know I was happy. You do not always know you are happy when you are happy. Sometimes you can't really tell when you are happy until it is over and you are thinking about it later. Next to me, in the photograph, is a young woman. It is time here to say something about kissing, and remember you have been warned. There are some kisses that ought to come with warnings. I don't mean the sort of kissing that is done in families where a child might get a kiss on the top of a head or the cheek with a good night. I don't mean a kiss blown into the air toward an applauding crowd or a departing boat or the kiss you might get of an object if it is important and you dropped it and it didn't break or if it is just cold and smooth and feels good against your lips. You likely know the kind of kissing I mean and you know how it is done even if you've not done it yourself. It is done with two mouths pressed together so that neither person can talk. It is a different kind of communication, this sort of kissing, than language. And although it is very important, practically nobody would be in the world if it weren't for kissing, it cannot last forever. Eventually you must take your mouth off the other person's mouth and something is lost when the kissing has to stop. The kissers become two people talking. It does not matter the story of what happened at the base of that tree. It has nothing to do with philosophy or with my poisoned breakfast, so I will leave it out. Like kissing, it is perhaps too powerful for words, even one O or a person's name. It can be very powerful to write the name of a person you have kissed, or even just someone you wish you had kissed on a scrap of paper where no one can see, or carved into the trunk of a tree where everyone can. It is even powerful just to write it down in your mind when you are alone, but it still does not matter, I thought to myself, because now I was alone there at the tree. When you are kissing someone, you feel perhaps that you will never be alone, but of course everyone is alone sometimes. It is lonely, sometimes, to be alone, but some people are good at being lonely. I am one of them. I am a loneliness savant, a word which here means that loneliness comes naturally to me, so I am quite good at loneliness if I do say so myself. I like to think about lonely things, poems and philosophy and sad songs I admire, and places and people I do not know or will never see again. It is said in a song I admire by another associate of mine that the loneliest people in the whole wide world are the ones you're never going to see again. And this is the sort of thing I like to think about. Lonely thoughts and lonely language and lonely things that happened a long lonely time ago. Things that you tell yourself walking on the gravelly ground under a tree that has been there for a long time do not matter. Telling yourself that something does not matter is one of the loneliest things you can do because you only say it, of course, about things that matter very much. But often, and this is the lonely part, they only matter to you. Yeah. I don't have anything to say. No. It's just great. I just get this very, like, indescribable feeling of love for that book. <laughs> um, 
that's my favourite passage. According to Goodreads, I read that book on the 3rd of January and it's still <laughs> my favourite that I read this year. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I think that's like... <laughs> so I discovered this year, this is a tangent, that I am not... For someone that's quite intelligent and mm. quite emotional, I'm not very good at knowing the feelings that I feel at the time. Like, right. I'm not very good at being like, I am angry, I am happy, I yeah. am sad. And that passage... One, where he's like, sometimes you don't know you're happy till it's over. I was like, oh my god, that's what that yep. is? Yep. That's when you're happy. <laughs> that's what that is. And then, when it got to the bit where it was describing loneliness, I didn't know that's what I was either. <laughs> <laughs> Until I was like, oh, that's my entire inner monologue. Maybe you need to read this book. <laughs> I think maybe I should read this book. I think this book might be essential on my emotional journey. <laughs> it might be. Because <laughs> I was like, oh my god, you're explaining my life to me right now. Let me stick. No, I love, like, I very hashtag relate to that, yeah. to that passage as well. Um, will I do my favourite line or will I do that after? Do your favourite line. Go for it. It's from something different. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure I had... A specific favorite line we were talking about this the other day i was mm. like oh i don't think i have one but i was looking through photos on my phone because sometimes i just take photos of book quotes mm. and forget to ever look at them again but yeah. i was going through and i did find one and i thought that's a good line so i thought it'd be my pick and it is from the ghost sequences um which is a short story collection by ac wise she's the one who wrote wendy darling and oh Hook. yeah um, and the line itself is from a short story called Exhalation Number 10, which you don't need context for. Um, and the line is, Henry knows all movies or ghost stories, frozen slices of time, endlessly replayed. Oh. Which is just a really good line, so. That is a really good line. What's that film scholar that was like, when you put something in a film, you kill it? Like, not that exact quote, but you know what I mean? Like, you yeah you like capture it and then it's dead all film is dead or something i know exactly who you mean but i don't remember the name if anyone knows <laughs> but yeah <laughs> let us know <laughs> but yeah i get that um so yeah those are mine what what's Very your nice. favorite passage so my favorite passage is not as pretty <laughs> um, <laughs> or as profound mm. this one i picked because it just really stood out to me when i read it as a writer because it's pure storytelling through dialogue, which I'm rubbish at. Mm, and same. it's like... Okay, it's from the first novel in the Witcher series, um, Blood of Elves, by Andrzej Sapkowski. And obviously I'm obsessed with the Witcher TV show, so I had to read the books. And this is just a really, really short passage and scene where Ciri, the princess, is doing fighting training with one of the Witcher's, Cohen at the Witcher's Keep. Um, so for context, the scene starts where I start reading. It appears between two very like different scenes in different settings. And it's sort of like a transition. Mm -hmm. But I've just never seen it. Like It feels cinematic. Mm. Or like, a, well, it's based on a video game. So like a cutscene. Like kinda. a cutscene, right. yeah. But that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> But I've just never seen it done in a book and work. Yeah. So, like, you know, the, the lines before it are like, 
and this is how it was for 10 days and nights and it finally passed and blah 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 and it's a whole rounding off of a a bit Mm -hmm. and then we have this faster Siri lunge attack dodge half pirouette thrust dodge balance balance with your left arm or you'll fall from the comb and you'll hurt your womanly attributes what nothing aren't you tired we'll take a break if you like no Lambert I can go on I'm not that weak you know Shall I try jumping over every other post? Don't you dare. You might fall and then Marigold will tear my my head off. I won't fall. I've told you once and I'm not going to say it again. Don't show off. Steady your legs and breathe, Siri. Breathe. You're panting like a dying mammoth. That's not true. Don't squeal. Practice. Attack. Dodge. Parry. Half pirouette. Parry. Full pirouette. Steadier on the post, stammit. Don't wobble. Lunge. Thrust. Faster. Half pirouette, jump and cut, that's it, very good. Really? Was it really very good, Lambert? Who said so? You did, a moment ago. Slip of the tongue. Attack. Half pirouette, dodge, and again. Siri, where was the parry? How many times do I have to tell you? After you dodge, you always parry. Deliver a blow with the blade to protect your head and shoulders. Always. Even when I'm only fighting one opponent. You never know what you're fighting. You never know what's happening behind you. You always have to cover yourself. Foot and sword work. It's got to be a reflex. A reflex, do you understand? You mustn't forget that. You forget it in a real fight and you're finished. Again, at last, that's it. See how such a parry lands? You can take any strike from it. You can cut backwards from it if you have to. Right, show me a pirouette and thrust backwards. Ha! Very good. You see the point now? Has it got through to you? I'm not stupid. You're a girl. Girls don't have brains. Lambert, if Triss heard that, If ifs and ands were pots and pans, all right, that's enough. Come down. We'll take a break. I'm not tired, but I am. I said a break. Come down from the comb. Turning a somersault. What do you think? Like a hen off its roosts? Go on. Jump. Don't be afraid. I'm here for you. Ha! Nice. Very good. For a girl. You can take off the blindfold now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. And I just, I really enjoyed it and I liked that it was funny at the end and I remember that I laughed out loud when I read it because that surprised me. Mm-hmm. And it the, he doesn't overdo that technique but he does it a couple of times throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know, I've never thought, I always really struggle with transitioning between like scenes and chapters and doing it in a way that still adds something yeah. to a book rather than you know, taking stuff out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was cool, and I made a note to remember it, so this is me remembering it. Yeah. I think it's cool to, like... I like when authors will do random, very short scenes like that, because often what happens with me is I I get the short scene in my head, and I'm Mm. like, cool, that's a thing, and I've written it. And I'm like, but it's not a chapter, though, is it? Where does it go? Where does it go? But then maybe I'd do something like that. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, that literally shows nothing except the relationship between those two characters, which isn't a big relationship yeah. at all. Like, the yeah. trainer guy's a minor character. Mm-hmm. But it's just fun. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it made me remember that you can do stuff that isn't in service of the story. Yeah. It's just fun. To yeah, do. yeah, yeah. I get you. I also felt like it's, you know, when you go to a panto <laughs> and there's like the actors are all off stage but they all shout te- things to each other if it's like a chase scene or something mm, because yeah. they're swapping the sets around yeah, yeah, yeah it made me feel like that and i enjoyed that <laughs> um and my favorite line 
um, I cheated a bit with this because I honestly haven't read that many books, <laughs> but I have listened to a lot of music. Mm. And I wanted to shout out one of my favourite lines that's not a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> and it is a song in Northern Star by Dom Farah, who, incidentally, wrote it about his girlfriend Shannon Barry, who is a spectacular writer in her own right and is friends with Dodie. And if people enjoy her infatuated content, feel like they should go and read her Instagram because I feel like they would enjoy it. Okay. Anyway, the line is, three hours into a three-minute call, some gambler wondered if she just won it all. And the first bit really scratches my poetry brain. Yeah. Because I enjoy the three hours into a three-minute call Yeah. Um, but I also just really like the the rhythm of it. I think it's fun. It is. Um, and that's that's my favorite line. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your favorite <clears throat> new author? My favorite new author is quite easy to pick because I loved both of her books that I read this year, and that's Ava Reed. She's the author of The Wolf and the Woodsman, which came out last year, and Juniper and Thorn, which came out this year. Um, her books are very dark. They're a cross between, like, horror and gothic and fantasy, mm-hmm. um, and both draw upon different kinds of, like, folklore or fairy tales. Um, the Wolf and the Woodsman's inspired by Hungarian folklore, um, and is very, very creepy and wonderful and all about, like, trees. You would like it. Um, but the one I'm going to read from today is Juniper and Thorn. Um, again, I'm going to do a full episode on this one, so I'm going to be quite brief with the plot today Mm. but essentially it's a very loosely inspired by the juniper tree fairy tale which is a fairy tale that i knew existed but didn't know anything about when i do the episode i'll explain what that is but it is basically a wild story like some i think someone gets like beheaded and buried under a tree it's like a whole thing doesn't matter for today (laughs) um and it is about three sisters who are housebound under control of their father who is the last great magician in Oblia I think is how you say it I apologize it's probably not right Marlon Chen who's our protagonist falls in love when she sneaks out of the house one night and the main crux of the plot is her trying to find a way to escape her father's rule for good okay so I thought because I'm going to talk about this at a later date, I would just read you the beginning of the book. Nice. Um, which introduces us to Marlon Chen and her sisters and her love interest, and which also does a really good job of scene setting. This was another contender for like the setting mm. category today because it's very cool. But yeah, one thing I really love about Ava Reed and what has made her my favourite author of the year um, is her first lines are always good. Um, and her first chapters are always so weird. <laughs> She's very good at starting a book in a very intriguing way and also immediately giving us a vibe for like what the book is going to be. So this is probably my longest quote of the episode, sorry. But I think it shows you pretty clearly why I fell in love with her writing. I'm settled in. I think you're going to get it straight away. You're going to be like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> of course Emily likes this book. Okay. <laughs> I checked under my bed, but the monster was gone. It had been gone since morning, when the pink fingers of dawn flushed it back to its favourite hiding place in Rose's garden, 
spiny tail banded around the trunk of the juniper tree. It would lie there, belly flat and hissing, until I or one of my sisters went to feed it our leftover chicken bones or gave it a rub behind the ears. Of all the creatures that lived in our house, it was the most easily sated. By evening, the garden was loosened with the speckle of fireflies, rustling with the susurration of wind through the willow branches, but otherwise quiet and still. From my bedroom, I could see the whole brindled sweep of it, the stout, swollen hedges and the ivy that trawled over the rust-checkered gate. If anyone in Oblea walked down the road past our house, they might feel green tendrils curl around their ankles or hear the whisper of ferns through the fence. The pedestrians whispered back, rumours about Zmivichenko and his three strange daughters. When I was younger, their mean words made me cry. At 23, I learned to close my ears to them, or even to relish them with a resigned, perverse bitterness, closing my fist around the old heart. After all, the meaner their words, the better their business. The rumours deposited clients at our doorstep like a cat leaving its mangled prey at the feet of its master. The more jagged and gruesome the rumours shape, the more clients gawked at my sisters, as if their beauty were a velvet carpet laid over a hole in the floor, something that might fall out from under them. My sisters were beautiful without ruse or artifice, which was my curse, really, not my father's. My father's curse was never to be satisfied with anything, so to him my sisters were beautiful, but not beautiful enough. He had been cursed by Titka Whiskers, the last true witch in Oblia. My father had done all he could to run her out of business, to make himself the last true wizard in the city, so she'd repaid him the only way a witch knew how. Of course, then he was the last true wizard in the city, and he wasn't satisfied with that either. The clock gonged nine. I had heaped old throw pillows and a sack of scrolled autumn leaves under my quilt, moulding them to a shape that approximated my sleeping body. Rose had cut a sheaf of dried wheat stalks from my hair, the colour slightly too pale, and with none of my real hair's untended frizz. But if... When, our father rose from his bed and stumbled half-dreaming past my room, I hoped he would not look closely enough to know the difference. The curse, too, meant he could sleep for hours and hours and still wake with the faint itch of exhaustion under his skin. Outside, the sky darkened in increments, like an obsidian blade lowering over Oblia's pale throat. The sounds of footsteps, quick and light on the wooden threshold. I turned around. My sister, Undine, stood in the doorway. Dear Marilyn Chen, no one will believe we're anything but witches if you don't put a comb through your hair. A flush crawled over my cheeks. I left my bed and sat down at my boudoir, scrutinising my face in the mirror. My sallow cheeks now bore two splotches of red. My hair was a mess of coils that fell as heavy as a quilt over my shoulders. I don't know what to do, I said. It's too long. All of our hair was too long, and far too long for the current fashion. Those slim curls like rolled tobacco that the other women in Oblia sported. Our father would not let us cut even an inch. The clients, he said, liked that there was something charmingly rustic about us, our untrimmed hair the relic of an older, simpler time. To them we might be sweet singing milkmaids torn right out of some wealthy man's pale pastoral wallpaper. I did not have a dulcet singing voice, but I smiled at our clients as sweetly as I could. Rose, Undine called softly, come here and help. Quick.
quickly. My second sister slipped through the threshold in a crinoline gown, her bared shoulders as sharp as kitchen knives. She took in my hair and Undine's angrily flared nostrils inside. Our mother's ivory-handled comb lay on our bureau, a bit of my dark blonde hair snarled in its teeth. But Rose, being the second sister, was gentler. She began to work through my curls with the comb. The last time anyone had done so was my mother, and that was years ago. Rose managed to tie up my hair with a ribbon and some butchered emulation of the Oblian woman's hair. The pink silk ribbon matched my dress, a crinkled cranberry with a neckline low enough to make me blush. Not that it mattered very much. Pinned between my beautiful sisters, I was little more than a piece of furniture, a particularly elaborate candle stand. The clock gonged ten, and then we were off. Through the garden, the damp soil sucking our shoes. Arm in arm, we picked our way past the scrying pool, as bright as a tossed coin. Through the thistles with their purple buds, careful to bypass Rose's delicate meshwork of baby's breath and fever view. The flowering pear tree coughed white petals at us, but all the monsters were cowed or slumbering. Still, we were quiet. We could not risk waking them. Or worse, waking our father. We had risked tiny rebellions before, or at least Rose and Undine had, but never something so large and illicit and wrong. This rebellion was like a book with all its pages torn out. I did not know its beginning, middle or end. The thought of Papa seeing us made me woozy with dread, and our very own garden began to feel terrible and strange. To outsiders, it was always terrible and strange, even in the daylight. They were not accustomed to it the way we were. There were the glass apples, which tasted sweet and made you wine-flushed if you could bear to put those hard, sharp bits in your mouth. There were the black-amber plums, fat as bruises, which were suffused with a fatal poison. Our father had nurtured an immunity in his daughters by feeding us slivers of the fruit from the time we were infants, and now we could bite into the plums and taste only the tang of their rotted bitterness, not the poison underneath. But even we were warned never to touch the juniper tree, which bore berries of the most dangerous variety, both poisonous and sweet. Whatever sick thing was in them, we could not be inured to it. In my 23 years, I had seen the garden come to be occupied by a number of other things, and I had come to consider these things ours. Our fiery serpent, which looked like a regular snake until it caught the sunlight, and in its black scales glimmered with a flame-bright sheen. It spoke in a human voice without moving its mouth. The voice seemed to enter your head as if you were the one conjuring its words. It would promise you silken handkerchiefs or ceramic beads, and if you accepted, its gifts would materialise in your hand, spun out of nothing, for a price, the milk from your breast. But even if you paid, in the morning all the gifts would turn to straw and manure. I didn't know what would happen if you asked it for something more than trinkets, or why it would be so terrible to give suck to a serpent. I watched it wind through our garden now like a slick of oil, leaving pale coils of shed skin in its wake. There was also our goblin, the poor thing, who had lost its home when the Rodinian land surveyors drained the marshes outside of Oblia. Its single eye shone like a lantern in the dark, its beard as long and white as lichen grown over a log. In its gratitude for our hospitality, the goblin had become excessively protective of my sisters and me, 
and a taking to trying to bite our clients in the ankle when they cross through the garden into the house. After the goblin cost us a hundred rubles and nearly brought the city's grand inspector to our door, my father made sure it was always shut up in the garden shed whenever we had visitors. Last time when I'd gone to let it out, it had already chewed a hole through the wood and was sulking in Rose's bed of tarragon. We had patched the hole painstakingly, each taking turns keeping an eye out for Papa, and then shut the goblin in again. Undine had wanted to gag it, to make sure its tears didn't wake him, but such a thing felt unspeakably cruel and I managed to convince her out of it. As we passed the shed, I heard its cowed whimpering. My least favourite of all our creatures was Indrik, a bare-chested man with the legs of a fawn or a goat. He was forever bemoaning his fate as a refugee, as he has fled the mountain where he'd lived when Rondinian miners had begun to plummet for silver. He languished by Undine's scrying pool, mournfully examining his reflection, claiming he'd once been a god and everyone in Oblia had worshipped him. They'd left him offerings of slain geese or painted eggs in their prettiest bleating ewes. I shuddered to think what he had done with those ewes, given the lustful way he died her milking cow before she'd died. I didn't know if he'd ever been a god at all, but it was no use trying to argue with him. He would only weep. To make sure Indrik did not catch us as we left, Rose had fed him a sleeping draught. I saw the blurry shape of him beneath one of the pear trees, the coiled muscles of his back as huge as boulders. His snoring was a soft whistle, like the train I could sometimes hear very distantly from my bedroom window. There were other creatures that I could not name, ones that I could only refer to as monsters, badger-looking things that snuffled the earth for roots and truffles, spiny-tailed weasels with beady red stares, such as the one that liked to hide under my bed, eyeless ravens that winged blindly through our rhododendrons. They ate the rabbits and squirrels that came to masticate Rose's herbs, so we let them stay, and besides, we didn't know what would happen if we chased them out. There were no stories about these types of monsters, or maybe the stories had been lost. Either way, my sisters and I were all afraid we might wake up cursed just like our father if we did them any harm. But all precautions had been taken, and none of those creatures were roused tonight. When we reached the gate, Undine swung it open, and we brushed all the dirt from our shoes and the hems of our gowns. Like we were serpents shedding our skin, we swept the, the mustiness and sorcery of the house off of us. While I stared down the cobblestone road that unspooled before us, my stomach knotted with fear. I'm going to skip ahead a few pages. We're on this trip out of the house. They have made it to the ballet for Ooh. the evening. Interesting. Yes. Hope you're enjoying the weirdness so far. It is fucking bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing Bogatier Ivan, Rose said. They must do it every night. If Papa knew that, he'd have one of his fits. I cringed at the thought. Bogatier Ivan was Obley's most famous ballet, and it was a corrupted version of one of the stories in our father's codex, transfigured by Rodinian influence and otherwise eroded by time. The titular Ivan had gone from step warrior to saint, and his bride had gone from chieftain's daughter to Serevna, and any number of other small changes had turned the story into something else, something that was scarcely recognisable to me. But it pleased the Oblians, and more important, the Rodinians. These newcomers arrived, waving the Tsar's banners, talking of things like land development and city planning, 
or else under the emblems of private companies who squeezed every drop from Oblia's day labourers and then vanished, only to be replaced by other men under different emblems but with the same goal of bleeding the city dry. They were the reason Oblia's port bustled with trade from the east and the reason why our streets were laid out as neatly as wheel spokes. I did not think much of them, except that when they came to our gates, our father instructed us to ignore them until they left. But now the theatre was packed elbow to elbow to see one Redinian incomer grace the stage. I peered over Rose's shoulder at the pamphlet, searching for his name, like I might glean something important from the particular arrangement of the letters. Her finger went up and down the page, skimming his biography. They say he's the youngest principal dancer in any Redinian Ballet Company ever, she said. Only 21. That's so sad, isn't it? Why is it sad? Because, she said, what do you do when you're 21 and you've already achieved everything that most people can only dream of? You have the rest of your life in front of you, but nowhere else to go. I felt sorry somehow that I had asked. Before I could say another word, the orchestra warbled out its opening notes and the velvet curtains parted and the whispers around me went silent, all eyes drawn toward the single light on stage, round like a rhyme of ice. Cellos sang languidly under the trilling of flutes and oboes. I'd never seen Bogatir Ivan with my sisters before, so I could not anticipate the crescendos and decrescendos and when the snare drum would kick in or when the harp would add its sultry voice. With every unfamiliar beat, I felt something plucking at me like a string, my bones rattling, my blood singing. I knew the vague shape of the story, but the music added something new to it, something that made it almost too big for my eyes to hold. The first ballerinas flurried across the stage like snowdrifts in their white tulle. Male dancers in red bounded after them. They were the dragon czar's animate flames. The ballerinas swooned dramatically, I knew from the story in Papa's Codex that they were the spirits of ice, of pure virginal frost, of Oblia's lands before the conquerors came to burn and spoil it. Black clad, the dragon czar mimed laughing as the cellos droned gravely. I knew, too, that eventually Ivan would enter, clumsy and swordless, just a farmer's son and a peasant until he became a warrior, and, in this version, as the pamphlet synopsis had told me, a saint. There were no saints in Papa's version of the story, but there was always Ivan. Though I had spent so many years conjuring an image of Ivan in my mind, I was not prepared to see him now. Black hair streaming, chest bare where his shabby jacket parted. As soon as he was there under the lights, it was impossible to look anywhere else. It was impossible not to follow his path across the stage. In his presence, the flame men wilted like cut roses. The snow women stirred, silver faces brightening with nascent hope. He stumbled past them to the dragon czar. Even his floundering was graceful. The dragon czar reared as if to strike him down, and then the pretty Zarevna danced between them, pleading with her father while Ivan retreated and the snow women simpered. The dragon czar swept off stage with his flame men, leaving Ivan and the Zarevna to circle each other like hesitant wolves. Ivan's threadbare shirt tumbled off his shoulders, and in that moment I felt as if all the audience was holding the same long breath. Sebastian Reskin was so lovely under the livid candlelight that I had to force myself to exhale. 
My eyes traced the delicately corded muscles down his abdomen and along his thighs. He took the Serevna's hand and kissed it. Her movement seemed somehow clumsy next to his, as if she were counting the steps in her head. Sebastian's steps were as fluid as a spill of water, as though he could not imagine moving in any other manner. He lifted the Serevna's leg, her fingers stroked along his face. I felt like a voyeur, like some uncouth intruder witnessing a tender miracle not meant for my eyes. I felt the same way I did when I watched the gulls and cormorants arc from the pier over our rooftop, embarrassed of my own heavy, flightless body. His knee parted the Serevna's thighs and I blushed so profusely I knew Undine would mock me for it if she had been looking at all. But every face in the theatre was turned towards Sebastian. He was the beacon of a hundred unblinking stares. Whatever my sister's suitor had paid for the tickets, I would have paid double. Triple. For the first time I began to understand Undine's and Rose's reckless desire, the thrill of possibility that drew them out of their beds at night, shocking our father's dire warnings. My fingers curled into a fist in my skirts and I did not unclench them until the final act when Ivan emerged as a saint. Sebastian was bare-chested again, wearing only thin nude stockings that he looked like he'd been poured into for all the modesty they afforded him. His chest was leafed in gold, whorls of gold of gilded paint that crawled up his throat and spiralled onto his cheeks. Even his lashes were daggered with false pearls. Over his shoulders he wore a winged mantle, white feathers ruffling with his twirls and leaps. I could not fathom how he spread his legs so wide, or how he jumped so high, or how he didn't crumple with the shudder of inertia when he landed again. As the music quavered to its end and Sebastian and the Serevna bowed, half the theatre lurched to its feet at once, thunderous with applause. Several of the women around me were weeping, coal tracked down their pink faces. I told you, Undine said as she hauled me out of my seat. Even her voice was breathy, her blinks too quick. It was worth it, wasn't it? But the curtains had closed, erasing Sebastian from view, and I felt as though I had been left unanchored, adrift in the sea of voices. The noise was pressing into me and the heat of all the warm bodies was making my head swim. The air tasted sour with so many tittered words, and once again I could scarcely breathe like some hot, invisible hand was closing around my throat. Faces pinwheeled past me. I could not tell the wolves from the sheep. I have to go, I managed, jerking my hand from Undine's gasp. My voice sounded like it had been wrung from wet cloth. I have to get out of here. Rose made a garbled protest as I pushed past her, but I did not stop. My steps fell clumsily on the red carpet. I could hear the rustling of silk as the audience members shuffled from their seats, though a haze had fallen over my eyes and everything looked as bleary as the grass covered in morning dew. By some gift of mad, manic instinct, I found a side door by the left of the stage and barreled through it, gasping as I tumbled out into the cold blue night. Relief felt like the snapping of a thread. I leaned back against the side of the building, my forehead damp with cool sweat. My hair had come loose from Rose's pink ribbon and fell in coils all over my face. I brushed it back as best I could, fingertips buzzing. The alley stretched to either side of me, boundless and black. Overhead, the stars were smog-veiled and the only light was leaking through the windows of the ballet theatre, a pale yellow film. 
It had only just occurred to me to be afraid when the door swung open and someone else staggered out. The man was doubled over, one arm bent across his abdomen. With the other hand, he braced himself against the wall, turned away from me, coughing and spluttering. Are you all right? It was all I could think to say. Reeling, my mind still addled with its ebbing panic, I picked my way toward him and leaned down to examine his face. Sir, are you ill? He retched, sick, splattering the cobblestones in the hem of my skirt. I was so well accustomed to the sight and sound and smell of vomit that I didn't flinch. Instead, I leaned closer, squinting at the man's face in the dark. Sir, please, I said. You're ill. I'm no healer, but I can fetch my sister. He wiped his mouth on the back of his hand and looked up at me. The curve of his cheek caught the light, and I froze like a rabbit mid-leap. I was staring into the misty blue eyes of Sebastian Reskin. A white silk blouse had been pulled haphazardly over his shoulders, but it was sagging open at the chest. I could see the gold paint flaking off his skin, off his cheeks, smeared where he'd rubbed at his mouth. A single white feather drifted from his black hair. I mumbled something that was unintelligible, even to my own ears. Sebastian held my gaze, eyes wavering. The whites of them were cracked through with red. I remembered his soft and graceful landings, the way his thighs tensed beneath his tights, the way his hips had pressed taut to the serevnas, and my face went torridly hot. His lashes fluttered with their false pearls, a fringe shadow over his sharp cheekbones. His skin was as pale and unblemished as the ivory handle of my mother's comb, smoothed by so much time spent in my or my sister's hands. Thinking of it only made me blush further. Even now, sweat dewed and smelling of sick, he was so beautiful I couldn't look away. Just say that you love Luke Hemmings. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's got dark hair. Oh, uh, okay. It's not Luke Hemmings. It was just the outfit that made me think of The that. outfit, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. That was a good chunk of the first chapter of Juniper and Thorne. I know that was really long, but like every time I tried to cut it shorter, I felt like I was missing mm. good bits. No, so, I really so you liked got all it. of it. But yeah, I adored this book. It's very weird. It's very dark. It takes a very, very gruesome turn. <laughs> but as I think you can see from those passages, it's also very beautifully written. Mm. Reads a very descriptive writer, so the setting is always very vivid. The emotions are always really heightened. Um, and that does make the horror elements of the book very visceral too, which I love, but is maybe a bit much for some people. But yeah, both Juniper and Thorne and The Wolf and the Woodsman are big favourites of mine now. Um, maybe more so Juniper and Thorne, just because it's a bit weirder. Mm. <laughs> um, and I can't wait for her novel coming out next year. It's called A Study in Drowning, and it is a dark academia novel, which will be quite cool. And she is also writing a Lady Macbeth novel too, Ooh. which sounds like it'll be horrific in the best way. So yeah, that was my favourite author. I really, really liked the line near the start that said that the plums were fat as bruises. Yeah. That, like, that is a, that is a good line. A lot of the, without going into spoilers, food and eating is very important in this book so a lot of the food descriptions are like 
either sound delicious or horrific. horrific. Like, yeah. And also the bit with the, the description of the music is, yeah, that's very you. Yeah. <laughs> Emily cries at the intro of musicals. Like the first four notes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who was your favourite new author of the year? Well, I feel like if I was really genuinely just going by favourite new author, it would be Joanne Harris, because I've just picked two of her books, mm-hmm. right? But I'm not going to read another passage by Joanne Harris. Sure. So my other big favourite book from the year was Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And she was new to me. Yeah. So um, this is actually her fifth novel, but I have never read anything else she's done. Um, and this was her 2022 release. So, like Honeycomb, I'm going to do a whole episode on this book because I loved it so much. I could not stop talking about it when I first read it. Um, and you will love it. Yeah. I, I, I didn't... I just assumed that was a debut because I didn't know her before this. But I've heard so many people talking about this book specifically. It's amazing. And... The reason I picked it up is that the two quotes on the cover are John Green, mm. um, who I unironically love, <laughs> uh, saying this is one of the best books he's ever read. Yeah. And then our girl, Erin Morgenstern, calling it a gem of a novel. Yeah. Which it is. So the book follows Sam and Sadie, who are two students who met as kids in a hospital ward, bonded over their love of video games, had a falling out and never spoke again. Right. That is until Sam sees Sadie across a train station in his early 20s and he recognises her immediately. And that's mm. the beginning of the story. Okay. But it's not a love story. <laughs> it is a love letter to games and creating art and collaborating with people. It's very much a book about making things. And I, like, I have never wanted to keep making art as much as I did when I finished this book. I feel mm. like I got to it when I was very much in a slump yeah. about art. And then I read this and I remembered why I made things. So mm. I would fully recommend it if you're in a in a weird spot. Um, but the reason that I picked Gabrielle Zevin as my favourite new author is just that I absolutely adore her writing style. She flits so effortlessly from present to past to future in this novel and she does it all through very tiny details the way that memories and games both actually work Mm -hmm. so she uses names objects and like yeah like titles of things as little port keys to different elements of a story right and it's a thing that i always try to do in my head but this is like a roadmap of how to do it and so i thought i would do what you just did and read the beginning of the book to show you what I mean. So this is from chapter one and it's called Sick Kids. Before Mazer invented himself as Mazer, he was Samson Mazer. And before he was Samson Mazer, he was Samson Mazer. A change of two letters that transformed him from a nice, ostensibly Jewish boy to a professional builder of worlds. And for most of his youth, he was Sam. S-A-M on the Hall of Fame of his grandfather's Donkey Kong machine, but mainly Sam. On a late December afternoon in the waning 20th century, 
Sam exited a subway car and found the artery to the escalator clogged by an inert mass of people who were gaping at a station advertisement. Sam was late. He had a meeting with his academic advisor that he had been postponing for over a month, but that everyone agreed absolutely needed to happen before winter break. Sam didn't care for crowds, being in them or whatever foolishness they tended to enjoy en masse, but this crowd would not be avoided. He would have to force his way through if he were to be delivered to the above-ground world. Sam wore an elephantine navy wool peacoat that he had inherited from his roommate Marks, who had bought it in freshman year from an army-navy surplus store in town. Marks had left it mouldering in its plastic shopping bag just short of an entire semester before Sam asked if he might borrow it. That winter had been unrelenting, and it was an April nor'easter. April? What madness, these Massachusetts winters, that finally wore Sam's pride down enough to ask Marks for the forgotten coat. Sam pretended that he liked the style of it, and Mark said that Sam might as well take it, which is what Sam knew he would say. Like most things purchased from the Army-Navy surplus store, the coat emanated mould, dust and the perspiration of dead boys, and Sam tried not to speculate why the garment had been surplused. But the coat was far warmer than the windbreaker he had brought from California his freshman year. He also believed that the large coat worked to conceal his size. The coat, its ridiculous scale, only made him look smaller and more childlike. That is to say, Sam Mazur at age 21 did not have a build for pushing and shoving and so, as much as possible, he weaved through the crowd, feeling somewhat like a doomed amphibian from the video game Frogger. He found himself uttering a series of excuse-me's that he did not mean. A truly magnificent thing about the way the brain was coded, Sam thought, was that it could say excuse-me while meaning screw you. Unless they were unreliable or clearly established as lunatics or scoundrels, characters in novels, movies and games were meant to be taken at face value, the totality of what they did or what they said. But people, the ordinary, the decent and basically honest, couldn't get through the day without that one indispensable bit of programming that allowed you to say one thing and mean, feel, even do another. Can't you go around? A man in a black and green macrame hat yelled at Sam. Excuse me, Sam said. Damn it, I almost had it, a woman with a baby in a sling muttered as Sam passed in front of her. Excuse me, Sam said. Occasionally, someone would hastily leave, creating gaps in the crowd. The gaps should have been opportunities of escape for Sam, but somehow they immediately filled with new humans, hungry for diversion. He was nearly to the subway's escalator when he turned back to see what the crowd had been looking at. Sam could imagine reporting the congestion in the train station, and Mark saying, weren't you even curious what it was? There's a world of people and things, and if you can manage to stop being a misanthrope for one second... Sam didn't like Mark's thinking of him as a misanthrope, even if he was one, and so he turned. That was when he espied his old comrade, Sadie Green. It wasn't as if he hadn't seen her at all in the intervening years. There had been habitues of science fairs, the Academic Games League, and numerous other competitions, oratory, robotics, creative writing, programming. Because whether you went to a mediocre public high school in the East, Sam, or a private school in the West, Sadie, the Los Angeles smart kids circuit was the same. They would exchange glances across a room of nerds, sometimes she'd even smile at him, as if to corroborate their detente, and then she'd be swept up in a vault-drying circle of attractive smart kids that always surrounded her. 
boys and girls like himself, but wealthier, whiter, and with better glasses and teeth. And he did not want to be one more ugly, nerdy person hovering around Sadie Green. Sometimes he would make a villain of her and imagine ways that she had slighted him. That time she had turned away from him. That time she'd avoided his eyes. But she hadn't done those things. It would almost have been better if she had. He had known that she'd gone to MIT and had wondered if he might run into her when he got to Harvard. For two and a half years, he had done nothing to force such an occasion. Neither had she. But there she was, Sadie Green, in the flesh. And to see her almost made him want to cry. It was as if she were a mathematical proof that had eluded him for many years. But all at once, with fresh, well-rested eyes, the proof had a completely obvious solution. There's Sadie, he thought. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I need to read this book. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> I just love, I love how much is in that. Like, that's four pages. Mm, mm-hmm. And I just love that you've got the discussion of the name, which is like future foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. You've got the exposition of the coat. And then you've got this like imagined conversation between him and his flatmate that mm-hmm. he's totally projecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have this like exposition of all these times throughout his life that he's seen this woman that we don't even know who she is yet. Yeah. And then then she's there. Yeah. I just love the way she plays with tense and stuff. I think it's really cool. Yeah, no, it is, definitely. Um and also just the that gets cooler when you read into why it's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Mm. But I won't spoil that yet. <laughs> okay. Anyway, what was your favourite album? Okay, so if anyone knows me <laughs> or follows me on social media, I'm sure you all know, I got very obsessed with BTS this year. Really? Uh, I'm I'm ARMY now. <laughs> um, they were my top artist of the year on Spotify. One of the members of E was also a top artist of mine and he only has three songs on Spotify. That is ridiculous. However, I actually don't listen to them by album. Like I just kind of mm. dot about depending on my mood. So maybe I'll talk about them one day. But not today. But I just did. I did just want to shout out that they were clearly my favorite artist of the year. Mm. Um, but I do have a clear album favorite of the year, and that is Five Sauce Five, the fifth album from Five Seconds of Summer. I love that it's called that. Yeah, that that's my first point. Great name. <laughs> I think it started as a joke. Like I think fans were calling the upcoming fifth mm. album Five, Five Sauce Five, Five, yeah, because it sounds good and looks good. And I think it just. Stuck. stuck and then they were like yeah cool we're releasing five plus five now and that was the title of it nice um so yeah it came out in september and um, but they've been releasing more singles than they ever have before an album launch mm. um like throughout the year to me a lot of the songs seem to be about getting older so you'll have some about like learning from past experiences reflecting on what they've gone through, like either personally in relationships or in their career. Like uh, Michael and Luke are both like settling down in like either marriages or engagements. So you've definitely got a bit of a like, oh, we're getting matured now. Mm. They're like the same age as us. But it's also a fun album. It's full of like lots of bops. (laughs) Um, And they're amazing harmonies and guitar riffs and drums. And I just love the whole thing, but I thought I'd single out a few favorites. I really love the song Easy For You To Say 
Um, they actually played this when I saw them in April, um, but they never released it as a single. Okay. So I had like a five, six month period of like having a song stuck in my head that I couldn't actually listen, listen to, to uh, which was quite strange. <laughs> um, but the pre-chorus is very catchy, so I thought I would read it out. It's obviously better sung, mm. but I think even when I speak it, you can hear like the rhythm to it. It goes, last night I lied, I looked you in the eyes, I'm scared to find a piece of peace of mind. I swear to you, each and every time, I'll try and change my ways. Such good little bouncy mm. rhythm to it. Um, it also has the line, this nostalgia in my bones, why can't I forget it? Which I just think is a really cool Oof. line. <laughs> um the next song I want to shout out is called Bad Omens. This is a song about ignoring red flags in relationships. Um, <laughs> it's very good. It's also quite a rare occurrence of Five Sauce using what is either a choir or some kind of like voice multiplication mm. thing to make them sound Bigger. like a choir. I'm not sure. I don't. I did music tech when I was like 14 and I've not done it since so mm. I don't really I don't know um, but the climax of the song is them in this choir or them repeating we go round again we jump back in bed that's what you do when you love somebody these bad omens I look right through them that's what you do when you love somebody and then the song ends in this big dramatic swell with these repeating lyrics and then look adds on else to the end so the line ends up being, that's what you do when you love somebody else. Oh. Which is just heart-wrenching. So, very good. <laughs> um, the final song I want to shout out is Older, which is a duet between Luke and his fiancée, Sierra Deaton. It is the sweetest love song. It's inspired by 50s love songs, um, but with their slightly darker but still romantic lyrics um so like the chorus is I don't want to get older without your head on my shoulder on the day that you leave me I'll forever be bleeding love as forever comes closer hope the world will spin slower I don't want to get older I don't want to get older which is very sweet and I also just wanted to shout out a good few like phrases that mm. they use um, they have the line, your cocaine-coloured wedding dress, which mm. I just think is like a nice sounding line. Your wicked smile, it says it all, mixed with my sad and cynical. Oh, that's like. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I like that. Yeah. Um, and they also refer to each other as my dear devoted delicate, which is such a like nice sounding phrase as well. So yeah, that's a little look at Five Sauce Five. Um, I do recommend the whole thing. <laughs> Is it's full of bangers. Um, it's also the first album they've produced themselves. Mm. Which I always think is fun. Like, when you yeah. follow an artist and they like do something different. So it definitely feels like, um, to throw around an overused phrase, authentic yeah. <laughs> to them. Because, yeah, I think, I think it's mostly Michael that produced it. And I think you can kind of tell that it's definitely, like... There's not much outside influence, mm. I'll put it that way. Some of their songs in past albums, you're like, mm, did you want to sing this? <laughs> yeah. Um, but this one, I feel like it's all very, yeah, very five sauce. Nice. Um, so yeah, what was your favourite album? 
Yeah, I feel like I know the answer. Yeah, I feel like everyone knows the answer. Midnight, obviously. Yeah. Um, Taylor dropping a new album will always be my top album. Yeah. And according to my pathetic little Apple Music wrapped thing, (laughs) I listened to 10,909 minutes of Taylor Swift this year, which equates to roughly seven and a half days. That was about how much I listened to BTS. Yeah. It was like 10,000 and something, so. So no surprises there. Yeah. Um, I love everything about this album. I like the artwork. Um, it's a very like seventies vibe photo shoot. I like the artwork in this one as well. Yeah. I like that it's a concept album where the concept was thirteen sleepless nights over the course of her life. I like that she wrote it to that, so none of these were older songs. Right. Okay. These were all written to the concept. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, which I think is a cool prompt. Um, because obviously it encompasses a lot of different experiences that can keep you up at night. There's like self-loathing, anxiety, plotting and scheming. <laughs> There's like partying, falling in love, grieving. So it's just a cool way for her to like flex her muscles, I suppose, which yeah. is, I enjoyed. A lot of the album was produced by Jack Antonoff, who's produced some of my favourite albums, mm-hmm. including Norman Fucking Rockwell by Lana Del Rey and Melodrama by Lord. So I really like the sonic vibe that Midnight's has going on. Mm-hmm. I wanted to shout out my favourite track, which is easily You're On Your Own Kid, which is heartbreaking. And to me, it is, it's one of the more vague Taylor Swift songs. Uh-huh. Obviously, like I'm sure you could read into all the autobiographical details of it. But to me, it's about kind of realising that you've created the life that you're in, so only you can change the narrative. Or mm. that you've like... Basically, like, you've made your bed, so you need to lie in it. Sure. Um, And her narrative is obviously, like, excessive fame and success at the expense of privacy, which, if you're the biggest star in the world, is obviously quite an isolating experience. Mm -hmm. But it's truly a song for, like, the former gifted kid burnouts. Ah. Like, Paris Geller needs this song. (laughs) So it's, it's also got this really nice, like, pulsing guitar sound in the verses, which... Like, it reminds me of the Louvre by Lord, mm. um, And the bridge and the outro are my favourite bit of the whole album, so I'm just going to read it out. Yeah. And it is... <laughs> From sprinkler splashes to fireplace ashes, I gave my blood, sweat and tears for this. I hosted parties and starved my body like I'd be saved by a perfect kiss. The jokes weren't funny. I took the money. My friends from home don't know what to say. I looked around in a blood-soaked gown and I saw something they can't take away. Because there were pages turned with the bridges burned. Everything you lose is a step you take. So make the friendship bracelets, take the moment and taste it. You've got no reason to be afraid. You're on your own, kid. Yeah, you can face this. You're on your own, kid. You always have been. Mm. And... It's like a big swell of music and I don't know, something about like, like I love all the lines of the song but something about my friends from home don't know what to say really gets me. Yeah, that's the one that actually stuck out to me when you read that, yeah. And um, the Make the Friendship Bracelets one really gets me as well. Um, But yeah, I just, it's one of those songs, like, it's it sounds kind of happy when you listen to it, and then you listen to the lyrics, and you're like, oof. Mm. I think my other top tracks overall might be, I love Mastermind. This is just for the Swifties among us. <laughs> I love Anti-Hero. 
Um, obviously, I love the music video for Antihero. All of her self-directed music videos are on point. Love that she's doing that. Um, I really, really like the song Question, even though a lot of people are down on it because I think the chorus slaps. <laughs> I love the bizarre production on Midnight Rain, which is like a weird robot voice. Um, but one other lyric that I want you to pull out is from her one collab track on the album, which is with Lana Del Rey. And it is called Snow on the Beach because this verse hits me like a bus every single time because <laughs> it's so happy. This is the opposite of You're on Your Own Kid. Okay. Um, but it sounds so sad because it's a collab with Lana Del Rey. Sure. <laughs> and so the, uh, the lyrics are, this scene feels like what I once saw on a screen. I searched Aurora Borealis green. I've never seen someone lit from within, blurring out my periphery. My smile is like I won a contest, and to hide that would be so dishonest. And it's fine to fake it till you make it till you do, till it's true. Oh, that's cute. I know. <laughs> I love that like last little bit, like, it's fine to fake it till you make it till you do, till it's true. Um, I think it's so rare that someone can put into words and music the feeling of happiness, like, dawning on you. Mm. And that, the music at that bit, is what that feels like. Oh. And it's just very pretty, and I would recommend. Okay. So yeah, that's that's easily my favourite album, and if anyone wants to chat shit about it, yeah. then you can just DM me. Well, we're both very predictable this year. Yep, we were. <laughs> I love us. <laughs> Do you have a favourite film or TV show to round us off? Yes. I have actually not seen many films or TV shows this year. I feel like I'm sure we spoke about this before. I feel like after lockdown, I got out of the habit mm. of going to the cinema, cinema. Mm. which used to be my favourite thing ever. But yeah, I've 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 slowly started in the past few months of this year getting back into going to our local cinema when there's like something new out mm. um, by myself, which is quite nice. Mm. Never really done that before. So yeah, I've not seen too many this year but the first one that came to mind and it definitely is my favorite of the year is Jordan Peele's Nope. I'm a big fan of Jordan Peele. I think his films are very clever. Get Out which was his first film is one that I love so so much and I love Nope as much as I love that one. So Nope follows the Hayward siblings played by Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer. And at the beginning of the film, this is not a spoiler, their father is killed by a coin that falls out of the sky, they presume from an aeroplane. It falls, he's looking up and Mm. it falls straight into his eye. Yeah. He doesn't make it. So (laughs) OJ, played by Kalea, has to take over the family business of horse handling on film sets. So to keep things afloat, he also sells some of their horses to a nearby western theme park, which is run by a former child actor who starred in a sitcom that has this tragic history of a chimpanzee actor flipping out and killing several of the human actors. Okay. All of that is wild enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then one night, OJ and his sister M discover a UFO that is eating live things and then spitting out the inorganic matter afterwards. They realise that's the thing that killed their father 
spitting out the coin. I see. And they decide to get this UFO on film to sell to Oprah, and with that money, they'll save their late father's ranch. I love it. Love the concept. Yeah. I know that sounds like a lot of plot I might have given away, but I promise I haven't. (laughs) So, I'm not going to say much else plot-wise, except that you should watch it. Um, It definitely has horror elements for the first half of the film. But I'd say the last act is actually mostly just action. It's like watching an Indiana Jones film. Okay. The bits that really got me that I thought were, like, chilling and that actually made me be like, that's horrendous. Why am I watching this film? Um, Were the flashbacks to the sitcom with that chimpanzee. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm scared of apes. Trigger warning for extreme violence (laughs) in those scenes. But in a very, like, twisted way, those scenes are amazing. Mm-hmm. They're just horrendous. With every Jordan Peele film, there is also a layer of um, satire or exploration of certain social themes. This one, I'd say, is about the, like, I have to film this generation, Mm. the TikTok generation. Also, the siblings get themselves into very dangerous situations so they can monetize on it. Yeah. It's also a film about spectacle, which I could go on for forever about how cool a theme that is, but I would definitely get into spoiler territory. Um, But there's a quote about spectacle that comes up at the start of the film. Um, It's also about exploitation, um, the animal onset exploitation is the Mm. obvious calling point with the chimpanzee, but also the fact that the Haywood siblings are horse handlers on sets, but they do like the film can starts like their their plot starts when he's doing like a little talk on set about how you need to be around the horse, you need mm. to make the horse safe. Everyone else is going to be safe. So that's like the obvious calling point to exploitation. But also bear in mind it's a black owned farm that is getting targeted by this UFO. Mm. It is also, which we love here, a film about film. <laughs> mm. Obviously, their family business is in horse wrangling on the film sets. Um, But also they descend from the man who was in the first ever moving image. The man on the horse that's in that like spinning thing. That's their ancestor. Um, And there's also a lot of like very interesting camera related thing to do with the UFO itself. So yeah, I really, really loved this one. I urge you to watch it even if you're not super into horror. Because I promise it's so entertaining like I said, the horror is kind of the first half of the mm. film. So if you make it through that, then it's basically just entertainment from then on out. And yeah, it's called Nope because Peel is pointing out that the smart thing to do in a horror film is to say nope <laughs> to a dangerous situation and walk away. But then that doesn't make a very good film. Clever. Yep. <laughs> what was your favourite film or show? I feel like I needed to give some honourable mentions first. Sure. Um, one was to do Revenge with yeah. Camilla Mendes and Maya Hawke. I did love that as well. I loved that film. That was one of the only films of the whole year that made me be like, I adore this and I will rewatch it over and over. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and also we dressed up as them for Halloween. We did. Um, and the second one was one of the only films that I saw in the cinema this year, which was The Banshees of Inisherin with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Um, both of these were outstanding films about the deep, dark weirdness of friendship. <laughs> one was about psychotic teenage girls, 
One was about middle-aged Irishmen cutting off their fingers. Yep. But I absolutely love both, and so if you haven't seen them, I would recommend. However, my top pick of the year is a thing that I just haven't heard anyone talking about, and I wanted to have thoughts. So (laughs) it's a TV show, and it is The Midnight Club. Mm. It came out over Halloween, and I heard nothing about it. But it's really good. So... It's set in a woodland hospice for terminally ill teenagers, which sounds super depressing, but (laughs) I promise it's not. So this one girl, Alonka, is diagnosed with thyroid cancer and basically has to find palliative care. And she researches this hospice and finds out that one girl, Julia Jane, had the same type of cancer as her and left the hospice cured 40 years ago which obviously people don't tend to leave hospices cured. Yep. So she is on a mission to find out more, and she goes there. And while she's there, she meets a ragtag group of dying friends, (laughs) including a snarky Irish ex-ballerina called Anya, a compulsive liar called Sandra, a gaming enthusiast called Amesh, and just a resident nice boy called Kevin. So right away you've got the whole found family vibes, you've got the ensemble cast, which I love. You've got mortality with all the impending death, very morbid humour, very funny, like, black humour, and very, like, Love Island vibes with all of these teenagers (laughs) that are just stuck in a house. Love Island. (laughs) So it's, it's very good entertainment. So as the series goes on, Alonka explores the old house, is trying to uncover its secrets, creepy things start to happen, shadowy figures, haunted house vibes, is it the meds, is it haunted, no one knows. Then she meets a mysterious woman in the woods, just beyond the school grounds, this is all in the first episode, (laughs) who tells her about an ancient vein of energy running under the hospice. The hospice which, before it was bought by the owner, was home to a cult. So now you have a cult storyline. Interesting. It's so fun. But the best part, the best of these three threads, and the part which I think you would love, is The Midnight Club, which is a secret society held each night in the hospice library where the kids tell each other original, like, creative writing stories, which they fill with, like, magic and paranormal activity and hauntings, um, and where they vow each night that if they are the next to die, they will do everything in their power to signal to the rest of them that there is an afterlife. And that's the premise of the Midnight Club. I see. So it's very dark academia. There is mystery and intrigue, but they're also very much focused on the idea of creativity. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a real creative writing workshop where the kids will interrogate and critique each other's stories as they're telling them. Mm Mm-hmm. And although you have, like, the present-day mystery of the woman in the woods, the cult, the hauntings, and you have the drama in each episode of, like, the love lives of the teenagers and whatever, the structure of the show is really, really cool because each episode has a focal point of when it strikes midnight, they gather in the library and one of them tells a story. And the visuals then become not the the present day in the house, they flash to the narrator as the main character in whatever story they're telling, which inevitably reveals their own backstory in like a creative, clever way right. how they came to end up in the hospice. Okay. Um, and then the rest of the club will feature as side characters in that story. But they don't all know 
who each storyteller is casting in each role. So like the storyteller for that night will cast in their mind someone as the love interest, someone as the sidekick. Mm. And the rest of them obviously don't know who's who. Yeah. Because only you as the viewer can see that. Sure. Um, And so you get to learn all about the different relationships between the different storytellers. Yeah. It's just so well done. And I haven't seen anything like it in a really long time. And I was just kind of sad that more people weren't on the hype. Because mm. uh, I feel like I feel like the trailer as well, the Netflix trailer, really didn't do it ju- justice. Yeah. It made it look like a haunted house show. Yeah, I think maybe Netflix is getting a bit too saturated with teen drama, drama which is maybe... Maybe what why it's fallen free to. And it, it maybe looked it looked like it could go down a bit of a shitty Riverdale road. Yeah. But it really like Is it not based on a book? I'm pretty sure it's it might based be. on a series of books or something, I think. Could be. But it felt very literary. Yeah. So that that does feel right. And it felt it does feel like intelligent. Mm. But it's also ridiculous mm. and totally bonkers. So I would really recommend it if you're into like Spooky but fun. Cool. Um, also, there is an old-fashioned cage elevator with a secret button. Ooh. And I just feel fun. like that's a cool detail <laughs> that I wanted to mention. Okay. So, yeah. I would... Yeah. If I've not sold you, then I don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <sighs> okay. Are we doing presents? Do you want to? Yeah. Cool. Um, I have a kitten on me. Yeah. So... What... One's mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ones like closest to me on the left, and they're in blue paper with the sparkles. Um. Yeah, I think you have five. I have five. Four, so you can start. I will open this little teeny cute one. I love the gingerbread ribbon. I know it's cute, isn't it? It's adorable. I bought that today. Oh yeah, this is our tradition. If you're new to this, we open our <laughs> we open Christmas our presents on the Christmas episode. <laughs> Ooh, it's an Oliver Bonas parcel. Obviously. I love an Oliver Bonas parcel. Oh, they're so pretty. <laughs> I know, I thought you'd like them. I actually got those months ago because I just saw them and was like, oh, I'll get those. I was like, Rebecca, wear those. Yeah, I will. They're, they're little... very like art deco. Yeah, they're very like art deco, little earrings, little bluey greeny gemstones with little silver fans they feel very evelyn hugo to me yes they do yes they do feel very <laughs> evelyn hugo i love them thank you I'll just oh oh they're cute scrunchies nice i like yeah. these got little silk scrunchies well you were saying that you were intrigued by the pillowcase so i thought i'd get you the scrunchies to try i do like to sleep with my hair up but then sometimes it gets in little, like, knots, like, or it, like, gets, like, kinks in it. But that's the point in the silk ones, isn't it? Is yeah. It's not meant to ruin your hair as much. Yeah, it makes it, like, Aww. healthy. Thank so. you very much. It seems like a boring present, but I was oh, like, no. you will enjoy yeah, that. I, I so. definitely do enjoy that. Thank like. you. <laughs> okay. Wag well, again? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh. It should just slide out. Yeah. This is like a wand box. <laughs> it's very, like, long and skinny. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's taper candles! <laughs> Thank you! <laughs> You're welcome. I was like, what is that? 
Oh, they're green taper candles to go with my green living room. How exciting. Thank You're you. welcome. <laughs> Definitively book shaped. Yeah, um, um, there, I don't think there's going to be very many surprises in your Christmas this year. I don't think there will be for you either. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. Did you have that already? No. Yay. <laughs> I don't, I can't pronounce this though to read out what you've got me. It's I want to die, but I want to eat. Is it Tabaki? I think so. I think. Um, yeah, this is a like Korean translation. I think it's like a part memoir, part like food fiction, yeah. part food. But the reason that, I don't know if you know this, but the reason I want to read this is because RM from BTS recommends it. I know that, but um, yeah. Kara also read it. Like she picked it up in Edinburgh ah. when we were there, and she said it was good. So. Yeah, no, I think it sounds very interesting, and it's not actually my normal fare, which is why what? I wanted to. And I figured then it was the least likely that anyone else would actually get you. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Thank you. You're welcome. Right, next for me. Now this one has candy cane and peppermint ribbon, which yes. is very sweet. <laughs> I'm trying to describe this. I feel like I'm doing like an audio description. <laughs> yeah, all of mine is in star wrapping which is very on brand yeah I can't wrap so <laughs> oh more pink candles, candles. <laughs> pink taper candles oh that's so cute though they're gonna look so cute the week holders I have shitloads yeah. of candle holders and no candles yeah I just remember you said not that long ago that you needed to buy some and yeah. so I thought I'll get you like more expensive ones that you wouldn't yeah, that buy wouldn't yourself. Because yeah. I would just get the shitty ones. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> You're Go ahead. I think this is the random thing. The random. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it's a little ring light. But it has all the different colours. Yeah. Because you keep saying that there's not enough daylight when you make TikToks. That is very, very true. Oh, thank you. No, that's very helpful. I enjoy that. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I don't know if it will actually be good for when you're doing TikToks because I know yeah. it's like... It says it has natural Yeah, well, natural light. light. But then I thought even if it's not good for that, it'll be good for like doing your makeup and stuff when it's yeah. dark. No, definitely. Thank so, you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I was sure racking my brains trying to think of useful things to get you. I was like, what does she need? She has everything. <laughs> I know. I am one of those people who just buy stuff for myself when I need it. Yeah, whenever you want is, stuff. Which is the thing like... that annoys me about my dad, so I should really stop yeah. doing it. Oh, this is a bit. I'm excited. <laughs> oh, it's a pretty book, too. <gasps> I saw this in Waterstones the other day and I was like, that looks really good. I was really worried that you were going to have bought this for yourself. But... Nah, I wouldn't have bought it. But it's So it's What Writers Read by um, Pandora Sykes, edited by Pandora yeah. Sykes, and it's. Um, there's so many good authors. Good authors, yeah. Just it's like all the. It's basically they've each written an essay, an essay on their favorite book. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm just having a flick. I know that um, Dolly Alderton's picked Heartburn. Of course she has. Yeah. But I feel like this is just gonna make me. This is good because I keep being in a slump about what to read. No, that's. I actually thought that as mm -hmm. well. I was like, it'll give. And me as well, because I would like to read mm. this as well. I think it will give us good book suggestions. <laughs> Exciting, thank you. Right, go for your final one. Yes. This feels like clothing. This is your your main thing. My main thing. Oh. Oops. 
careful because there is a fable behind you. She's on the bookcase now. Oh, so she is. Oh, that's cool. It looks like it's really short though. Oh, but it's that heavy, stretchy material, yeah. I think. Oh, it's like a jumper that looks like it's made of tinsel. <laughs> and it's purple. It You've been purple. very into purple. I have. Oh, I love that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, no, it's cropped, but I think that'll be all right with high-waisted. Yeah. It's very um, stretchy. Cute. Thank you. You're welcome. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and this also feels distinctly book-shaped, which it is does. fun. Hee <laughs> hee. How are you? <gasps> Yay! <laughs> it's the new Taylor Jenkins read. <laughs> I know. Oh, I can't wait. I was also slightly worried that you'd have bought this and had it in your room somehow. And I was like, no, and I actually forgot that just I even wanted it. Because it came out um, in the summer, I think, but I just, for whatever reason, neither me or you bought it. So What's wrong with us? I know. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited. Yay. <laughs> Merry Christmas to us! <laughs> I know. Well, that was. Thank you for my presents. Thank you for my presents. Um, and yeah, that that's us. That's our Christmas episode. That's us um, this year. What are you doing? What are, will you be doing tomorrow when this comes out? Christmas Eve, I will be working. Fun, fun. Till three p.m. <laughs> and then I'm getting picked up to go home, and then I'm gonna drink. A Bailey's, assuming that my mum has bought some. And that'll probably be about it for that day. Nice one. Yeah, what about you? Are you already home by then? I will have just gone home. Nice. And we will be going out. We always go out for dinner on Christmas Eve and do ah, a film. Ah, yeah. And then we do nothing on Christmas Day. Nice. So I will be getting all fancy to go out for Christmas Eve. And I'm excited about it. So yeah, hope everyone has a lovely Christmas. want to get in contact with us if you have any comments or questions or emails podcast at outlook.com we have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mention and please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there and we will be back at some point <laughs> we will be back season. at some point we've just not planned when yet there's been will. a lot going on yeah <laughs> We will. Keep keep an eye out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>